Welcome everybody to the third installment of the Lowdown Society. This episode is something I'm very excited about. I uh, went to Los Angeles, California in the middle of November 2017 to talk to a few of my favorite players who I considered to have the most fun gigs on earth. So obviously I wanted to pick their brains about it. This next player was part of a live DVD that really changed my life, I want to say. It was super inspiring uh, as a touring professional to watch a whole crew of people really at the top of their game. And I'll bring this up in this coming interview with the player in question as well. During this interview, I had a technical mishap, so I am relying on a backup cell phone recording. An iPhone recording is what you're actually listening to. And not only that, but you're also listening to the sounds of planes taking off and landing at the Burbank Airport as we were sitting outside in an event space called Beck's Secret Garden in North Hollywood. So now that you guys have been warned about the somewhat dubious sound quality of this episode, I hope you really get to enjoy all the incredible advice and stories and wisdom coming from the guest today. Our guest today is Miss Eva Gardner, who's been playing for Pink for many years and who also played for Cher, Gwen Stefani, Mars Volta, and many others. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Ms. Eva Gardner. Welcome. Thank you. Hello. Super happy you're able to be here. Thanks for having me. I have to tell you, and this is a compliment to you and your whole band, really. I watched the Funhouse DVD from Australia, mm-hmm. which is probably what, how old now? What, nine years? It was 2009. It was one of the best concerts I've ever seen recorded. Wow. I really, I really was just completely blown away by the balance of a really well-rehearsed, slick dance theater LA show and a show that also felt like everyone was having a good time and there was no, it wasn't too prepackaged. The real rehearsed balance to me was just right. Is that something that you guys are aware of? Yeah, I mean, that show in particular, I mean, it was it was just an incredible experience being a part of that. And for a production like that, there's so many moving parts. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not just the band, but there's the dancers, and we had an acrobat, and there's, uh, you know, the, the, the camera work, and the video, and the, the lights, and just all these elements combined. And all the people that were involved with that show were just, I mean, the best of the best and and um, to be part of that experience was was really special I mean looking back now um, there was nothing there's really nothing like that show as far as an artist doing not only singing but flying on a trapeze while singing mm-hmm. <laughs> you know floating upside you know um, spinning upside down and all this stuff and and uh, every night I feel like I just I noticed something new in the show you know, I'd look behind me and go like, well, I never noticed that someone's, you know, our acrobat's flipping behind there or whatever's going on on the screen. It was just, it was, um, um, it was really something else to be a part of. Yeah. And um, I think everyone just brings their A-game, which makes it that much better because, you know, when, you, when you're surrounded by people that are, that are working hard and bringing their best, that makes you want to do the same. Mm-hmm. I noticed when I watched that show that it just had an energy like everyone really wanted to be there. 
you guys' band to this day, to me, is one of the best touring bands out of Los Angeles. Thank you. It's you and Bruno Mars for me. Thank you so much. That's a huge compliment. Yeah. There hasn't been very many personnel changes over the last 10 years, has there? Uh, no, I mean... You and Mark and Justin are, are the same. Uh, yeah, Mark and Justin have been there um, 11 years. I've been there 10. Yeah. So this is my 10th year with her. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. The main question I tend to ask in all these podcasts, because I think that's what people want to know that are aspiring to become a sideman to a great singer, uh, is how did you get the gig? Um, how did I get the gig? Well, um, I got this gig from doing an audition um, a couple years prior to getting the gig. Mm -hmm. And um, I actually tried out for... Um, for the show Rockstar, when mm -hmm. they were they were doing the, the new singer for NXS. Yeah. So I tried out to be in the house band okay. for that show. And um, that didn't end up working out. And of course, at the time, I'm thinking like, oh man, that was like my big shot. This was, you know, I was like, it just didn't work out. And you think like, oh, well, I guess that's it. You know, better luck next time. And uh, literally two years later, I got a call. And the MD from that show remembered me from the audition. And gave me a call and asked me if I wanted to try out for um, for an artist, yeah. and and um, so I did. And it was like me and two other two or three other bass players. And um, it was kind of a, a whirlwind. It was a kind of a quick. I think it was a quick decision that was gonna that was gonna happen. So mm -hmm. it was a really really quick turnaround. Mm -hmm. And I uh, um, I was it's such a funny story. I was working at my parents' bar at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, the cat fiddle, and I was literally like yeah. like bartending. Yeah. And my mom, it's my family's place, so my mom was there. And I said, Mom, can you watch the bar for me for half an hour? I have to run across the street to SIR, which was like across the street from the pub at the time, and do this audition. So mom's like, no problem, I'll watch the bar for you. Yeah. Slung my bass around my back, ran across the street, uh, tried out for pink, <laughs> and was like, okay guys, I gotta run, gotta head back to the bar, and finished out my shift. and. Um, and then I got a call back from the MD, and, and uh, sure enough, um, he uh, he told me, he told me um, I was in a movie when I got the call. Mm -hmm. And um, when I got out of the movie, I saw that I had a voicemail, and he said, "Hey, um, so you got the gig, but if you don't call me back within the next ten minutes, I'm giving it to the next person." And I'm thinking, like, dude, I've been in a movie for the last two hours. I totally blew this again. I'm like, another shot, totally blown. Um, when I called him back, he was just totally messing with me. I look back now, and it's it's kind of it's kind of funny. But at the time, I was like, I was mortified. Um, but uh, yeah, and then I got. He told me I had gotten a gig, and I, they're they're sending me like four albums worth of material to learn and pack for three months, and I'll see you in three days. I love it. That's sort of how you always hope it'll be. You know. Yeah, trial by fire. I mean, yeah. you just jump right in and, and, you know, sink or swim kind of situation. Amos from Taylor Swift's band, he said to me, he says, people ask me all the time how I got the gig. And, you know, he basically played a showcase for Taylor when she was an unknown act in Nashville at a small club. Mm -hmm. So he was at the right place at the right time in yeah. addition to being a great player. But he said the really interesting question for people to learn from side people like us, he said, is how do I keep the gig? Right. And I thought, okay, that's a really great open-ended question that uh, gives you the chance to kind of give some great advice on how you've been there for 10 years. Because obviously, how you got it was not that you did well in an audition and, and they remembered your, your name and they called you and you showed up. But 
how you stayed on it for 10 years because obviously and this is the point i try to make to people is an artist at that level can afford or experiment with any musician they want so sure in addition to camaraderie and, and being a, a good human being and being respectful on the road on a personal level do you have any other sort of I, I mean I think there's a lot of elements that are involved here and I think one of the things is being versatile mm -hmm. being a versatile player and also being open to learning new things and to expanding your style and to expanding your skill set um, I mean over the years um, Pink has also grown as, as an artist um, and so we all grow with her and, and um, I mean in the other gigs that I've done as well it's like there's other elements that come into play is it like like keyboard bass mm -hmm. for instance mm -hmm. um, so you know take some piano lessons sure I can do it you know and and make it happen and and um, just study study a different craft um, just to make yourself a more valuable player um, upright bass I mean getting up those chops and being and I mean, there's a couple of situations um, over the years with Pink and with Cher where I bring the upright out, out on the road and um, also same with the key bass and also same with singing and these are all things that um, you just need to be able to to bring what is needed for the gig for the music for the situation at the time um, I play with a pick a lot of the time mm -hmm. I play with my fingers most of the time it just kind of depends on what's happening so I think that being able to to be versatile and to be open to growing um, has a lot to do with the other things like being a good person, being a good hang, yeah. being easy to get along with, yeah. um, all those elements that just come with um, with any job really. And it also says a lot about your artist. When you come in to their gig at a certain skill level, which they were obviously impressed by in the first place, but then they go, I need synth bass, I need upright, can you sing a little more? And you are open with, well maybe right now I'll swing it, but give me two weeks and I'll really swing it. You just make it happen. Yeah. You do what you need you do what needs to be done. Yeah. And and you you do what needs to happen um, for the gig and for the artist because ultimately you're there to support the artist. You're there at least in this particular situation when you're working with an artist. Yeah. Um, you're there to do what you need to do to support them in a, in a way that need you know to yeah. make them be able to feel supported and comfortable and 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 for them to be able to shine and, yeah. and be their best. So ultimately we're all we're all there to um, for the good of the whole. So on that note as well when it comes to developing more skill sets and stepping up to the plate to uh, sort of satisfy their increasing and more diverse needs. Mm -hmm. One thing that I think a lot of people that haven't had the fortune, the good fortune to play at your level that they might wonder is how long are you rehearsing? Say, I know you guys are starting uh, U.S. leg here in 2018, spring, right? right? Or early, late winter? March 1st is the first show, yeah. How long are you going to do production rehearsals for that? Um, usually, uh, usually we'll start um, like band rehearsals. Um, like that'll probably start mid-January or something mm -hmm. like that. We'll, we'll just have the band together and we'll do uh, a couple weeks of rehearsing mm -hmm. with just the band. And mm -hmm. then we'll move into production rehearsals where everyone will get together um, on the stage and with the dancers with, and start putting all those pieces together. Yeah. Um, and that will usually run, um, you know, anywhere from a couple weeks to a month, something like that. Mm -hmm. it's, it's about a month to a month and a half process depending on how big the production is and um, 
what is involved. So you're looking at a little more than two months out of your life between band rehearsals and production rehearsals? Yeah, something like that. Um, six weeks, five, six weeks. Yeah. Guesstimate. When people ask me what my favorite part of the music industry is, a lot of people say recording or songwriting or say touring. My, I think, where I feel the most creative and where I feel like I develop the most and where the most magic happen is pre-tour rehearsals. Making a show is my favorite. Out of all the great things we get to do, all the little departments of being a, a, a hired gun, making a show and the first maybe week or two of, of trying to uphold it and, and make it, that to me is the most exciting part. Yeah. Seeing what works, seeing what doesn't work, yeah. and, and uh, you know, when, when you're translating, uh, when you're going to tour a record, you're translating what's been recorded, the album, into a live setting. Mm -hmm. So you're basically taking what's, what's on the record and, and um, transferring it to, to a live band. Yeah. And um, depending on the music and depending on what the artist wants, um, the record is, is the place to start, you know, make it sound like what's on there. But mm -hmm. a lot of the time, um, depending on what's going on with, with the different parts, sometimes um, a key bass part on the record will turn into a live bass part or yeah. a bowed upright part or, uh, or vice versa. Yeah. And it just kind of depends on, um, on uh, where everybody's at with you know, well, most of the time it'll be the MD that's yeah. that's making those those calls. But um, we do have, we are able to make, you know, like how about if I try, you know, whatever. I mean, it's kind of the the possibilities are out there, and yeah. I think that um, the good thing again about being a ver being a versatile player and expanding those skill sets is being able to have those options and offer those options um, to the MD and to the artist. So you mentioning the MD twice in the last minute brings me to my next question because I've been following the band and I, I watched The Voice, which is kind of like the semi-member switching band from yes. the... Uh, Paul Merkowitz was the MD, I think, on the on that DVD that I mentioned. Mm -hmm. And now you have a different MD, right? Um, he's actually... Um, he's, he's, he MD'd our last run this summer. Okay, cool. Um, actually, no, sorry. Um, he just undid the um, more recent stuff with the new record. Yes, we had the promo. Undie. Yes, with, with the promo stuff. I was basically going to ask you your experience. Uh, we're getting super nerdy now, but yeah. that's what we do here. So I was going to ask you by your experience playing the same music for the same artist under different MDs. Um, Is there a big difference, or, or are they do they check in with each other when they take over the job enough to work? Um... Again, it depends on um, the setting. For mm -hmm. instance, the runs this summer, um, our MD was uh, Miguel Gamberman, mm -hmm. and he um, was he, the idea that he proposed was was creating a couple of mashups for the summer festival run, which mm -hmm. was like we, we we mixed up um, a No Doubt song with um, one of his songs called Funhouse, and it was Saw just like too. yeah, so it was like a fun like he did an amazing job. Um, creating a really fun, fun song for, yeah. this, for the festival situation. Yeah. Um, so for situations like that, ideas like that were presented. Um, Paul Markovich MD'd um, the Apple Music thing we just did for the Ace Theater, where we were presenting the new songs the first time. So 
in that situation and in that setting, Paul created um, the vibe that would be appropriate for that theater setting. Mm -hmm. So it just depends on the situation. Um, you know, for for a lot of time for award shows, a different kind of arrangement will be necessary. Mm -hmm. um, for instance, what's happening at the Country Music Awards? There's um, more of one of the new songs is going to have more of a um, like a, a like string arrangement, more mm -hmm. of a broken down kind of thing. So that happens sometimes as well. And Paul did the arrangement for that. So it just really depends cool. on yeah. on the situation. try to look what you've done so far and I try to look at the media that's out there and the interviews that are out there with you already that are from Fender and Ampeg, this, the stuff you endorse. Mm -hmm. And the thing that you mentioned in the five to ten minutes clips that your dad being part of the British invasion and him being your first and biggest bass hero. Obviously you've talked about it already but for anyone who hasn't checked out your endorsement videos would you mind uh, giving the short version of that? Yeah well my start my story starts with my my dad. Mm -hmm. um, he was a bass player mm -hmm. and part of the yeah the British invasion scene mm -hmm. and um, was from London England mm -hmm. and was part of that whole scene in the 60s when uh, you know he was in his first band with Ron Wood. They lived in the same neighborhood. Yeah. So that was the birds, the British birds. Um, and uh, later on went into playing the creation and um, was in an early version of The Faces mm -hmm. with Rod Stewart and, and Artwood and Bronwood and in um, McLagan and those guys and was just part of that scene. Yeah. And just growing up and hearing uh, those stories and, and just hearing about that lifestyle and everything that was involved. It was um, from an early age I just knew that that's, I, that's what I wanted to do also. And, just like, I'm going to be a bass player. Yeah. That's it. Was it earlier or later for you than 12? I, I would say uh, I, was in, I was in second grade. I was seven, seven years old. Yeah. And at that time, I remember like, being in my dad's studio with him. And I was having a slumber party, I think, that night with my little school friends. And, and I was kind of hanging out in the studio with dad. And I kind of like saw one of his basses and kind of picked it up a little bit and was like, I'm going to be a bass player like they did. And I didn't even really know what that meant at the time, I yeah. think, and really know what it entailed and what that really meant. But I just remember having this conscious decision that that's what I was going to do. Um, and I think I kind of dragged one of his basses across the floor. I couldn't, it was too heavy for me to, to carry, but um, that was a very um, significant moment that I remember. And it wasn't until later that I actually started playing. Mm -hmm. But that's just the moment that I remember actually like making the announcement to my school friends that I'm going to be... At seven. At seven, that I'm going to be... That's player. astounding. It's earlier than most people, but seeing how your parents or your dad was... You grew up in it, if you were steeped in it. I grew up in a rock and roll household. Yeah. I mean, between dad and all of his friends and... and I mean, I remember... Before, I mean, I didn't even really know, I, I didn't know who any of these people were that he was talking about. And the people that were over at the house, I just thought they were my dad's crazy friends. I didn't realize, I look, I look back now and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's John Entwistle that was hanging out. Or yeah. that was Mick Taylor in our living room um, hanging out and playing the guitar with my dad. I mean, that's, I look back and I'm like, these, I mean, what an incredible experience um, that was. But at the time, as a, as a young kid, I didn't, couldn't appreciate that. 
Um, but I look back now and I realize just how um, immersed in that world I was. Plus, growing up at the Canton Fiddle, which was uh, and is a hub for, for the entertainment industry. Mm-hmm. Um, so, with all those things, I mean, I just had, it was just kind of in my blood. When sort of studying up on you prior to this, the thing that struck me, obviously I didn't know all the classic rock heroes that, that came through your living room, but what struck me was, is this woman is the quintessential L.A. story. Steeped in it is the word you just used. Sure. And continuing on that track, you went to a special performing arts high school, correct? Yes, for the last two years of high school. Okay, and how did that, again, coming from a musician household, going to performing arts high school in L.A., was it a super open, experimental, creative environment there? And Yes and no. Um... I actually my first two years of high school I went to an all girl Catholic okay. school, which was yeah, yin and yang, totally yin and yang, total total one eighty. Yeah. Um, so I started out at the all all girl Catholic high school, and that's it was at that time that I started playing music. I was like in ninth grade, about fourteen, that mm-hmm. I actually started playing bass, thirteen, fourteen, and uh, I was playing in an all girl band because there there you know, there were like three other girls that played music in my high school, and so um, those were the girls that I ended up playing with. And I just started, I got to a point where I, I wanted to take it further. And so I decided to audition for the, um, for my arts high school called mm-hmm. LAFSA, LA mm-hmm. County High School for the Arts. And it was at that point that I made the decision that I wanted to really, really be serious about that. Um, and in a way, I took it further than my dad ever did and a lot of his friends. Because, mm-hmm. and this is, I mean, you know, dad dropped out of high school at 15 and started touring. Mm -hmm. Um, The 60s was a very different time when I think you could kind of get away with that. And And especially in Europe. Yeah, Yeah. oh my god, yeah, I mean, for sure. And and I think that at that time they could get away with, you know, a lot of those guys didn't know how to read music or didn't have like a a huge grasp on theory. Um, So when I made that decision to go to school, I decided when I was 15, I was like, oh man, I, you know, I'm thinking in my head, well, I can drop out of school and play music too. And quickly I learned that, no, it's not the 60s anymore. I can't do that. This is, I'm, I'm not my dad. I'm not my dad's generation. This is a whole different world. So the approach has to be completely different. Mm-hmm. So that's when I decided that I was like, okay, well, you know, if I want to break the rules, I should probably learn them first. Yeah. So that's when I decided to go the, go the more conservatorial route. Um, so it was both freeing and more constrictive at the same time. Um, it was more freeing because I was gaining a knowledge that I didn't have before. I was able to speak a language that I didn't have before. Uh, on the flip side of that, when you get into a conservatorial situation, um, a lot of times it can be too much about the rules. It can be um, too much of, if you don't practice eight hours a day, you'll never be anything. Mm-hmm. Music is a business. Money, money, money. Mm-hmm. You hear all these keywords in your head, yeah. and part of me is going, well, then why? I mean, hold on a minute. I started playing for a whole different reason. There's a little bit more to it than the, than the money factor. Um, so there were some interesting elements that happened um, in going to school. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm grateful for for all those experiences and, and all the different facets that come with um, that come with that experience. 
So to stay in chronological order, yeah. you went to college for ethnomusicology, right? Yeah. It's one of the best-sounding words ever. Ethnomusicology. Well, the question, uh, or the, yeah, the question that usually comes out of people's mouths is, what is that? Yeah. And it's basically, a, uh, it's a cross between um, musicology and anthropology. Mm -hmm. So study of world music and culture and how um, the music correlates to culture. Mm -hmm. And I decided that after um, I did the conservatorial thing in high school, I decided that if I wanted to continue on with, with studying, uh, I wanted to see what the rest of the world did. And because um, it was just the Western perspective up until that night. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I just wanted to have a whole, a whole different, immerse myself in a whole different, a whole different thing. Um, and that I did. I got really into, my main focus there was, was Indonesian music, was Balinese music. So I played Balinese gamelan for four years and learned a whole different way of, of um, uh, approaching music. So how did that experience, playing such a different instrument with such a different language, musical language, when you pick up a four-string Fender P-Bay through an SVT again, which is, and I mean this in the best way, because it's my favorite thing to do, as it is yours, it can have a bonehead quality that's very free, that it's so simple and rudimentary from a theory standpoint, some rock and roll bass part. Uh, how, did, how did being in a, in a complete other musical world in college apply to you being a rock and roll bass player? I think that... Um I was able to appreciate, again, a different perspective when I'm, when I was listening to a lot of the, we would show, our, um, again, I learned about a lot of different kinds of, of um, cultures, but uh, I bring back the Balinese one because that was the one I was most immersed in. Um, we would watch videos of ceremonies and, and, um, and celebrations and things that were taking place in Bali, and these pieces are just the cycle over and over and over again and it's a pentatonic scale I mean it's it's, it's a lot of it's very hypnotic and um, and it's just kind of going and going and going and you get lost in that I think and it, a lot of it's very simple but the simplicity of it can be can be can be misleading mm -hmm. because if you're tapping in um, there's so much more to those five notes as a bass player in rock and roll music, that's something that you get to kind of struggle with a little bit as far as explaining to people. I play back in Nashville with a few other touring guys from Shania's and John Fogarty's band. We have a, a band where we play ACDC music mm -hmm. only, right? And we treat it like if they called us and we got the gig. So we go in and research what kind of tubes were in their amps certain years and, and make sure that not only are we playing the same chord, or the guitars are playing the same position of the chord, and just completely nerding out for nobody's sake but our own. And other bass players, I'll say they're acquaintances, maybe not my closest friends, and they go, oh, I bet you sleep through that gig, because Cliff Williams from ACDC spent hours playing semi-staccato, all-downstroke, instead of dun-dun-dun, it was dun-dun-dun, and he played super soft. And... It is, in spite of touring and, and such, that little cover band with those guys have brought me to what you're saying. The more I study it and the more I sit there and play the same note sometimes for two, two minutes without even switching chords, 
the more I realize that I really am in love with bass and the function of bass. Right. Well, there's more than meets meets the ear, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. Um, I think if you're just glossing over something, and it, it, it sounds easy, mm -hmm. it sounds simple, mm -hmm. but there's so much more. Once you dig in, uh, it's it's. Um, I'll take the I'll take like the tomb bow as an example. Mm -hmm. It's like when I first got to that performing arts high school, mm -hmm. and I was doing like a walk through the school, and I heard the jazz band playing, and I'm like, and I'm hearing like, mm -mm, mm -mm, mm -mm, mm -mm, and I'm thinking like, oh, that's just like two notes, like three notes, whatever. That's super easy. Mm -hmm. But when I my first day of jazz band, um, and coming from like more rock rock and roll yeah. mentality, or like um, you know like the punk rock kind of a, kind of realm. Uh, and I'm in jazz band, and I'm in my head like, oh man, that's totally easy, whatever, I can, anybody can do that. And I'm sitting in the, in the bass chair, and the song comes up, and I was like, lost, completely. And at first listen, it sounds simple, but it's way more, there's way more involved. There's mm -hmm. more of like, there's a feel involved, there's like, when you're in that, we play a lot of like Latin, Latin jazz and salsa music. Um, mm -hmm. Again, it's... The rhythms are a lot more, um, more complex than what it sounds like, and I mean, if you if you break down some of the most simple music, like James Brown, mm -hmm. for instance, and if you break down the bass part or the drum part or the guitar part, they sound very simple. Each small part has it's it's that's like a lot of like interlocking patterns that work together, mm -hmm. and when you break down all those individual parts, you're like, oh sure, whatever, like it's just too, like like one note, you know, like boom boom. Mm -hmm. It sounds simple, but mm -hmm. it's all about the feel. It's all about the vibe, and that's like with the ACDC stuff. Yeah. Like that music is deceivingly. It's like it's not as simple as it sounds. It's deceiving because yeah. when you're going down, when you're breaking it down, um, there's a there's there's a feel involved. To hop on your train about the first encounter with with sambas or Latin music after. Because if you play soul, funk, R&B, heavy metal, and pop like I did growing up, your whole job is really both drums and bass is to make that downbeat, that one, feel as solid as possible, you know? And all of a sudden, after doing that for 15 years, I went to America, I went to school, and it's like, okay, here's the salsa. And the bass is not on the one. Right. And I'm like, every fiber, every cell in my body is, is designed to land. Exactly. And I never land. A whole song goes by and I feel like I never land. Exactly. And to them, them meaning people that grew up playing it, you know, have it it's in their like heart. It's like drinking water, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's like, like drinking. To them, they, they are landed the whole time. But me, being a downbeat person, exactly. I feel like I never land. My respect for those bass players and the lightness which they move through that with. Mm -hmm. It's almost like they're dancing with the downbeats but never even playing them. Mm -hmm. So I, I still have envy. You know? It's just it's just a whole different thing, and uh, a lot of times it's not what you play, but what you don't play. Oh yeah. Also, yeah. it's the space in between the notes. Yes. And how long you're holding the notes, and when to come pull, like, come off the note, and all those little elements make for um, for a good bass player. Yeah, absolutely. Like anyone can can pluck on the strings, right? But it's it's how you approach the instrument and mm -hmm. how you approach um, how it fits in the rest of the band yeah. as well.
mentioned early on, you also played for Cher, and that was 2014, says Wikipedia. Uh, yeah, I did, I did her tour in 2014, and then uh, just this year, more recently, I was doing the residency in Vegas. Mm -hmm. What would be the greatest uh, difference between, say, Pink and Cher? Well, I mean, they're, they're both incredible entertainers. Mm -hmm. um, and Cher has been doing this for 50 years, mm -hmm. and uh, she comes from a place where there's a lot of TV and all that. There's a lot of improvisation, um, so she just she just comes in, rolls with the punches. Like she she doesn't really have doesn't really have never never really has issues with her monitors or anything. She comes in, she's like, "That's great, cool. It's fine. Ready for the show. Let's do it. Let's knock it out." Um, so she's great to work with in that way, in that she's just really easy, mm -hmm. and um, the band's backing her up, mm -hmm. and she's she's being Cher. Yeah. And she's got her her monologues and her talking about her stories with with Sunny and her experiences like all through the years, and mm -hmm. and uh, it's it's a really um, it's a really wonderful thing to be a part of. Um, cause it's it's just such a um, part of history, her, you know, she just, she just received an Icon Award this year, mm -hmm. and she really is an Icon. So I can imagine playing lots of shows with Cher that when she gets off script is when it's the best. And she's so funny. Yeah. And she's, and she's quick, and she's yeah. witty, and she curses like a sailor, yeah. and, you know, she's, she's... Everything we like in humans. Exactly, <laughs> but, it's, but she's, but she's just a really, also just a really cool person. Yeah. She's just, um... Uh, just a pleasure to work for. Yeah. yeah. We'll keep going down the list of uh, people that, that are easily found in, on your resume. So uh, Gwen Stefani mm -hmm. is on there as well. Yeah, I did. I worked with her. Um, I did a bunch of shows with her uh, beginning a couple years ago. I did some live stuff with her, mm -hmm. some TV stuff. I went to like a private show in Japan with her. Um, so uh, yeah, I was working with her during promo time for her newer record mm -hmm. and um, I mean another amazing experience and another um, another iconic woman yeah you know another um, strong personality someone who's been in the business for a long time yeah and <clears throat> excuse me came from um, a band background yeah you know, she came from a band so yeah. she um, knows what it's like to be in a band so it was really fun to be in her band yeah. because she comes from that she was a band member, even though she's the employer. Yeah, exactly. Without getting too deep into gear nerding, you've mentioned about being able to have different sounds and all the stuff that all successful hired guns talk about, being able to be chameleons and really change and suit the song and your own personal favorite tone is not necessarily what you, you bring. But, um, and many bass players have waxed poetic about the combination of a Fender P bass and an SVT before, but... You obviously, in many times, regardless of what's on the record, you make that combination work, and you get a lot of sounds out of it. Are you a big, uh, since P-Bass is a one-pickup bass, are you a big moving your hand around and turning the tone knob down and just really trying, rather trying every possibility of that instrument rather than putting on a different bass? Um, for the most part, I will usually um, manipulate the tone knob or... Um, or finger style, mm -hmm. like whatever, you know, some palm nude or whatever, mm -hmm. or pick. And, uh, I would usually start with that mm -hmm. um, as far as 
creating different tones or you know if I need to I'll use a pet like pedal or um, sometimes things call for a chorus pedal or distortion or whatever you just kind of listen for what's needed and make it and, and try to simulate that sound or um, for the most part yeah I'll start with a P bass mm -hmm. and go from there I mean I've got I've got one with flat wounds on it I've got one with round wounds on it I've mm -hmm. got it just kind of depends on um, on what you're hearing and while we're in the gear department I do want to give you the a little platform here to our listeners to talk about you have a signature model mm -hmm. it has your is it your ship tattoo on it? Tell us a little bit about it and let people know if it's affordable and they should buy it. Yeah, well, it's, 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 uh, it is affordable and um, it's basically, the idea was it's, it's, it's a conglomeration of all my favorite bases that I've played over the years and it's got um, some vintage specs as far as the, um, the frets, it's got like vintage style frets and rosewood fretboard and... Uh, and um, I just really, uh, it just it still blows my mind that it, it exists. Because, <laughs> I mean, like, you know, growing up with, the, with Fender as a household name when I was a kid and, and, um, and then having one with my name on it is just, it's just totally mind-blowing. I saw this, correct me if I'm wrong, but are you the first female bass player to have a signature model with Fender? From what I hear, the first and only female ever to have a single oh, That's with. about fucking time, isn't it? Yeah. Well, congrats on that. That's Thank very you. exciting. Thank you very much. Because I feel with guitar, I feel like there's been... Uh, I don't know if Bonnie Raitt has one, but there's definitely... Yeah, I think Bonnie does have one. Yeah. I think Bonnie has one. I think Avril Lavigne has one, uh, as far as with Fender. Due to an extremely loud airplane, my question got lost in the shuffle. But uh, I asked Eva how she kind of got her first major name act started, the Mars Volta. My friend Ike, um, who's no longer with us, unfortunately. Um, Ike, I knew from high school, mm -hmm. my high school days. And I went to uh, actually that arts high school with his little brother, Brandon, who's also a bass player. So, um, Ike was in a band called De Facto with Omar and Cedric. Mm -hmm. And when At the Drive-In broke up, um, Omar and Cedric were talking about wanting to start another band with Ike. So, Ike called me up and, you know, he um, called me up and said, Hey, these guys want to start a band. You want to come down and meet them and do some playing? And that's basically what happened. Yeah. And we just started playing together and I remember sitting in the living room on the floor in the living room on, of their living room coming up with band names and and uh, that's when that's when um, it was all born and it was um, right when I as I was finishing school so it was the perfect time for me to be taking everything that I learned in school and then just throwing it out the window and just playing and it was just such a freeing experience and yeah. it was just such a creative time and and a creative experience, and, and um, it was uh, um, it was very uh, yeah, it was it was great, it was surreal, and um, it was a lot of fun. So, obviously, you're very busy touring. Uh, do you do a lot of studio work when you're home, whether it's for your own projects or for other people? Um, yeah, I do all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was actually just in. I was at an electric lady. Studios in New York mm -hmm. um, with Omar, actually working on some music. So I'll do stuff like that. 
Um, I uh, did a session here at Capitol a couple days ago. I uh, just get called for random stuff all the time. It just kind of depends on what's going on. So when I'm home, um, or even on the road or whatever, there's a, there's a situation where I get called up. I'll do studio work. I've even done, Mark Schulman and I have done a session on the tour bus before. Yeah. We got hired by, um, by um, a German friend of, of Mark's, and he hired us to do some tracks. So we were literally on the tour bus in Europe. That's amazing. Yeah. What is your favorite song to play on your current gig, and why? Gosh. Um, it's always changing, mm -hmm. of course. Um, but I would say right now, I mean, the favorite song to play on my current gig, which is which is Pink, would be What About Us, which is her um, one of her newer songs. Mm -hmm. And um, and I feel like it's my favorite song right now because of the message and how it makes me feel when I play it. Because it's it's a very poignant song for what's happening right now. <laughs> I, I saw her mention recently at one of the promo appearances you guys did that she doesn't like to talk about lyrics because it can mean so much to different people. And a lot of people take it as a relationship song, but she wrote it as a current event where the world is at slash politics without being too obvious song, right? Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that you picked that because the bass part is very supportive and fundamental and traditional really on that song, but it's your favorite song to play because not as a bass player, but as a musician, period. It makes you feel things. Yes, and that's what I was talking about earlier and what I touched on earlier about there's more to the notes. There's, you know, when we're, when we're pulling things from the ether, it's like, and they're coming through us, that's, that's when you're in tune and that's when you're, um, that's when you're really feeling it. And I feel like when we're up on stage, that's a language that we're all speaking. Mm -hmm. together. It's not the notes that we're playing necessarily. It's the message, that, message that's coming across and and what that what that song is evoking in all of us mm -hmm. and and how it's making us all feel. Mm -hmm. And it's contagious. Yeah. It's and that's one of the beautiful things about music. It, it's not always about the words or the notes or whatever it is. It's it's so much more. Which other instrument do you play on a hobby level or semi-professional level that you enjoy the most, except for bass? Except for bass? Yeah. Um, let me think about that. Gosh, I have so many like weird instruments that I love playing. Like I have a banjo that I really enjoy playing, and I mm -hmm. just kind of, you know, play like Clementine and stuff on it. But it's so much fun for me. Yeah. Um, I. Uh, but I've never actually take it, taken it into a professional setting. I just really enjoy playing like kids' parties and stuff with it. You know, because <laughs> that's like my skill level. Yeah. But it's really fun for me. Um, what else? I don't know. I'm, I write when I write music. I usually write on guitar. Mm -hmm. I usually write on guitar for, for that stuff. So I enjoy I enjoy enjoy playing that. I actually play guitar in, in a band with some friends of mine, which is which is also just switching things up and having yeah. and just using your brain in a whole different way and messing with pedals and, and, and just approaching um, music in a different way yeah. um, from what I normally do as a bass player. Um, I love playing drums. I mean, I really enjoy that as well. I think if I didn't play bass, I'd probably be a drummer. Same here. 
Who's your favorite drummer to play with or listen to? Because I gotta, I gotta go on this topic now. I love talking. Gosh, I mean, that's a really tough one. I, I love so many different drummers. For different reasons. For different reasons. Because they bring different things out of you, right? Exactly, and I mean, you know, legendary rhythm section Led Zeppelin, mm -hmm. of course. I mean that. I mean, that's just epic for me. Um, but I, uh, so yeah, bottom but I also love, um, I mean, Mark, who I play with, the Pink and Chair, he's the ultimate pop drummer, mm -hmm. pop rock drummer. And I remember when I did my audition, I, like, never played with a drummer like that before, mm -hmm. who was just so solid mm -hmm. and so, uh, I mean, that snare crack is, mm -hmm. like, it's just ultimate, the ultimate. Yeah. And it's, but it's, 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 again, it's, like, a deceivingly simple mm -hmm practice, right? It's like mm -hmm. you think pop drummer, rock, rock drummer, whatever, anybody yeah. can play that shit, right? Yeah. But it's, again, it's deceivingly simple because there's a lot of um, um, nuances that are involved, like the ghost notes to talk about or mm -hmm. whatever else. Um, another drummer that I just love playing with is John Theodore. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've, I've always loved playing with that guy and I did a session with him a couple years ago and it, I was like, yeah, this feels like, this feels like home. I mean, mm -hmm. I just, it just feels uh, my my soul sings when I play with when I play with him. You bring different things out in each other, mm -hmm. depending on what it is, right? It's like, are we having a conversation? Are mm -hmm. we going back and forth? Am I going to answer your call? Yes. Are you going to answer my call? Are we yeah. listening to each other? Or, yeah. um, or is the situation more like, all right, we're just chugging down the highway, and, and <laughs> yeah. you know, one, two, three, here we go. Yeah. Um, there's just there's just so many different situations, and just how there are different personalities yeah. as people. Yeah. There's different personalities as musicians. Obviously, you have a good situation. You've been in a sort of a family now for 10 years, and there's no signs of stopping there. Kids aren't really holding her back from doing what the world loves her to do. What are some of your uh, bucket list things as a musician? I feel like I've been checking things off the bucket list. I don't even know we're on my bucket list, which <laughs> is like pretty well, that, cool. That's a fantastic answer. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. Uh, I, just, I just feel like... Um, the more I'm open to, to learning and growing, um, the more things are opening up and um, the more incredible the experiences are becoming. And um, I just, I don't know, I feel like I could, I could die tomorrow and, and, and be happy. That's one of the most inspiring talks I've had in a long time. I hope you guys had as great of a time listening as I had hanging out with Eva. If you guys are enjoying these podcasts, please go like it on the social media pages, Instagram, Facebook, and also since we're now on iTunes, please write a good review or just like it. I need you guys' help in just uh, making other players aware that there's a source to meet and listen to these world-class bass players that I really haven't found anywhere else. So I appreciate you guys' support, and I hope you return for our next episode with the multifaceted, multi-talented Mr. Sean Hurley. So until then, stay funky, stay low, and I'll see you right back here at the Lowdown Society Podcast. <laughs>